Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 182 with my guest Pia Glenn. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, check it out, join the forum. There's a lot of people on the forum, but uh, I'd like to see it grow even more. We've created a gazillion um, different subject threads. Um, and if there's one that isn't there that you'd like to see, um, email me and uh, and suggest it. Um, also on the website are guest blogs by listeners, um, by mental health professionals, um, occasionally blogs by me, and um, and you can also go to the website and support the show. Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> I do this every time. I don't... Hey, Paul, maybe you write this shit down, and then, and then you don't wonder whether or not there's something else that you're leaving out. But then where would the... But then where would the self-flagellation be? And we all enjoy that, don't we? Uh, let's get to some struggle in a sentences. This is uh, from the struggle in a sentence survey. This one was filled out by a guy who calls himself, uh, <laughs> this is his name. I wake up and look out my window at the same scene daily, forgetting that change can come all at once and only believing the past will dictate my future. That's his pseudonym. Uh, I didn't even want to know what his fucking legal name looks like. Anyway, his anxiety he describes as spider sense tingles with the dread of being helpless. His sex addiction. There is only one thing important in life, and it is an experience that is fake most of the time. About his anger issues, someone has injected me with snake venom, which turns off the part of my brain responsible for smiling genuinely. That is a great one. Uh, my depression does that, where I just... 
Uh, faking a smile feels like lifting 500 pounds. This is the uh, same survey filled out by Taylor. She's in her 20s about uh, living with borderline personality disorder. Feeling predictable and volatile. Confident and needy. Loving and hateful. There isn't a me. Just a pinball machine changing entirely on each bank of the ball. Um, snapshot from her life. When something triggers a borderline episode and every bad feeling I've ever felt build up inside me, sometimes I release the tension through hitting my head on a hard surface. It simultaneously punishes me through jeopardizing my future and it releases the tension I'm feeling, jarring me back to the reality I'm in. But it brings the worst feelings of depression and regret every time. This was uh, filled out by Safira. And uh, she's a teenager about her dermatillomania uh, slash skin picking. She writes, I'm addicted to seeing the gross stuff that comes out of me. Maybe if I can get it all out, I'll be perfect. But every time I look in the mirror, I see a lumpy red monster. Um, living with an abuser, she writes, I don't think what happened to me was bad enough to be abuse. If it was, why didn't my dad say anything until the police came? Snapshot from her life, when I was 17, my mom told me that I deserved to get the shit beaten out of me. I told her to prove it, and she punched and kicked and pushed and bit me. I remember liking it, feeling like I had deserved it, but it wasn't enough because it had only left one mark. This is uh, filled out by, she calls herself girly face or girl face. She's in her 30s about her codependency. It feels like I can save me by saving you. In reality, I can't, can't save you any more than you can save me. And, uh, about, uh, and then just another one. She writes, living with bipolar, ADHD, and borderline personality disorder all in the same brain is like being stuck in a room with a thousand TVs that are on different channels and full volume with no remote to be found. This is from Chloe, uh, who's a teenager, about her depression. She writes, it feels like I'm drowning and everyone around me is yelling, learn how to swim. <laughs> oh, God damn it, that makes me laugh. That is so, that's, that is how ridiculous it feels when people just suck it up. Just look at all you have to be grateful for. Learn how to swim. <laughs> Uh, snapshot from her life. For my sister's 19th birthday, she planned a whole day of activities for the whole family. Parents, cousins, uncles, aunties, grandparents, great-grandparents, etc., and a few of her friends. By the end of the day, I was all kinds of exhausted, just not physically. A whole day of having to smile and be happy, having conversations I didn't want to be happening, drained me mentally and emotionally. The next few days, I found it more difficult than usual to get myself out of bed, shower, eat, and do anything else that essential is essential to being human. It was as though I was crippled by my own brain. I used to I used to experience that when I would come home from trips where I uh, spent time around my mom. Um, I would just sleep, just huge amounts of sleep, and my wife would always point it out, and I would I didn't want to believe it, you know, and I'd be distant and yeah. Um, this is filled out by Jenny. And uh, this is just a snapshot from her life. She, she uh, deals with depression, anxiety, uh, self-harm, and dissociation. And she writes a snapshot from her life as a medical student in the UK on placement in the psychiatric ward where I had previously been detained. I felt like a fraud. How can I help others through an illness which I can't even manage in myself? 
That's profound. But I always say that people who have experienced it um, are can be that much more empathetic to those that they're treating. Um, Annabelle writes about her hypochondria, um, and she's a, a teenager. Um, I think so much that I'm dying that I'm not sure what the life I'm scared of losing is even like. And a snapshot from her life, during a heart exam, my heart rate spikes to an anxious 150. The nurse looks down, concerned, and offers to play the cartoons she plays for the kids to calm them down. I say no, because I don't want to be treated with kid gloves, but I can feel the yes in my heart and my lungs and the ache of my tense muscles. I want to be young enough to be taken care of, uh, young enough to have my worries handled and soothed by someone else. Hmm. Sending you a hug. Um, this was uh, filled out by Devon Diva, uh, D-I-V-A-N, uh, Devon, Devon, I don't know. She's in her 50s and about her anger issues, she writes, I consider my anger issues to be like a wine cellar. There are some real doozies bottled up. That's a great one. Um, and then this one is by a guy who calls himself Claude. He's in his 20s. About uh, He has high-functioning autism, and he writes, I have more empathy than you could possibly know if only I had the ability to look you in the eyes so that you could see it. That's beautiful. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? I really hate the outro to your show, but I don't have any any ideas as to how to improve it, so I'll just slink away and quietly go fuck myself. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal be so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with Pia Glenn, who uh, is a talented uh, performer, uh, writer. She blogs for Exo Jane. She uh, has performed with Will Ferrell. She uh, she played Condoleezza Rice in uh, You're Welcome, America, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Will Ferrell did his kind of farewell performances uh, as George Bush. Um, and you have a YouTube channel called uh, Black Weekend Update. That's my latest endeavor. Yep. Yeah, I've got uh, some other videos there too. Yeah, you do some uh, some great characters on there. Thank um, you. The way that that we connected is, I believe, somebody suggested you as uh, as a guest. Yes, a and, lovely Twitter tweetheart, <laughs> and uh, um, and that was from something I'd written for Exo Jane about uh, sadness shaming. Yes, which I did not apply that phrase to. <laughs> Yeah, they, they titled um, it that. Yeah, okay. but um, that's sort of the idea. But uh, your, I read it, and kind of your take on it was that you know sadness is a part of life, and you know we shouldn't tell people this is an inappropriate thing for you to feel. Uh, you know that there's a fine line between wallowing in your sadness and just kind of embracing it and 
getting through it. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth? No, absolutely. I think, I mean, for me as a direct response to in that moment, a specific person in my life, uh, who's very aggressively positive and in a way that rings as false to me. And I want to make that distinction. As you said, um, it's not about just saying, you know, screw happiness, but I'm a person who has depression and it's a reality. And it's not about, putting that first or choosing that above, uh, you know, I want to have the best, most functional life I can, just like anybody. <laughs> and it may take a few extra steps. And that's a part of me. And so, you know, if you're not down for that ride, that's cool, too. But I'm really not here for the, uh, you know, why? Why? What's wrong? Just put on a happy face. Just, you know, smile. Choose to smile. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can be a positive person and s- still have moments of of sadness. Absolutely. So that's why I, I, I hopefully, and I, I got a really positive response, a genuinely positive response that I'm so yeah. appreciative of to that piece. So I do think people got that I'm making that distinction and, and the, you know, the, that happiness looks all different kinds of ways on different kinds of people and that there's no one way to do it in, in any, you know, set number of steps or anything like that. Talk about for you the difference between situational sadness and depression and how you know when um, which one is bothering you. For me personally, um, I try to uh, do the looking at the actual situation, the surroundings. I think there are times for me when there's such a clear distinction. It feels like the old phrase, like the drugs don't work. Um, not in that instance, speaking specifically to medication, but to the coping, the healthy coping, coping mechanisms, mechanisms to, uh, treats to, um, you know, there are days when watching a cheesy comedy can, can brighten things. And there are days when, you know, 12 straight hours of <laughs> amazing comedy will do nothing. And that's, there's, there's a line, there's a dividing line. Um, so, and I'm constantly checking in with myself on that. That's like I said, that's just sort of a reality for me. Um, but it's, it's a clear distinction and, and it's, it's, it's to me, I sort of have a list of, okay, we can go to here, we can go, you know, coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. and then they get sort of like ramped up, extra strength, high octane. <laughs> yeah. Do I have to go to the beach right now? I can make it happen. Okay. Watching comedies doesn't do it for me. I watched Captain America the other night, although it's not a comedy, right. but it's, <laughs> but it's a, you know, uh, theoretically an up, uplifting mm-hmm. uh, thing. And it just made me more depressed. A, because I thought it wasn't a well-executed movie. I didn't think it was terrible, Mm -hmm. but it was just, it kind of left me feeling unfulfilled. And so I went to my go-to of, you know, Hitler documentaries, psychopath documentaries, uh, you know, something, the the darkness, there's that, that, that truth there about documentaries, about stuff that is dark that feels like a sick warm hug to me absolutely do you ever uh, embrace that side of yourself or do you try to avoid it because it makes it worse for you no i absolutely do sometimes i do one thing that you said um i found funny that the you felt it wasn't well executed about captain america i have that so often sometimes it ruins my coping mechanism as a performer if i go to you know something where it's like you know what i just want to detach for a second and watch this tv show or this whatever and then if i'm rewriting it in my head or it's like oh you ruined it i was trying to giggle but oh well because you want to uh, <laughs> you want to lose yourself yeah. and you want to forget that you're watching acting you want right. to be transported to another world right i watched this amazing documentary last night 
right? And I'm not just bringing this up because you're you're African American. I'm, I'm bringing it up because it it's about transporting yourself to a different world. It's called uh, Paris is Burning. Oh it, yeah, it, it, I know just, it well. It was made Absolutely. in 1990. And, I know very well. And it's about the subculture, um, the drag balls, the drag balls, mm-hmm. and. I had no idea that these things existed, that they have their own language, their own rules. Absolutely. And talk, talk, talk about it since you're familiar with oh, the Oh, yeah, I know. You know, it's interesting. I grew up with it um, just because it was, I grew up in New York. Um, I've been, I moved all over. I lived out on Long Island. I had a very suburban time. And then I was in actual Manhattan and, and in the clubs at 1415 with some of those actual characters um, in that time period. So Paris is Burning was like, yeah, this is about this family group. Um, except that it wasn't. It was, it was definitely uh, took a dark turn. And as I'm now as an adult, there's actually a bit of controversy in looking at it through our lens now that um, it was a bit diminishing that it didn't follow through with the most human elements of the story. Um, and that it can happen sometimes with documentaries, but absolutely the, the language of the balls, the, the taking the family name. I always, always uh, really linked onto that because I don't have a very strong family connection, but to explain, think, for, explain for the listener what taking on right, family right, name to, means um, for in the drag balls and the drag in the, in the, old school classic drag community and what they're basically are, are is their pose offs mm-hmm. that's where voguing came mm-hmm. from and called ball to assign mm-hmm. that real old style grandeur of assembling in and they would do in these old church halls or big vacant halls um it, wherever they could assemble and really do a runway show with a performative element that was just fantastic. I mean, within the, a, within a category like um, most feminine right. female, um, most convincing military man, mm-hmm. you know, things mm-hmm. like that. And the, so now you see a little, you see the influence with like RuPaul's Drag Race, um, but the actual language of what Paris is Burning depicted, the real drag balls, like you said, the categories were very important um there's always there's that great scene when they're saying it's um uh there's banji boy which means uh like street or like hood gear um and then there's executive realness the term mm-hmm. realness is Where very the guys important dressed up in the three-piece yep. suits with the briefcase and, and it's all about the walk and <laughs> the mm-hmm. attitude and, and the facial expression that persona and the and the judge in paris is burning it's i have said this quote since I was a teenager, anytime I want to call someone out, uh-huh. <laughs> it buttons on the left because they got so specific to know that men's suits are tailored with the buttons on a different side than women's suits. Yes. And just it, this fantastic moment of being called out as wrong. Let's and examine those buttons. It buttons on the left. <laughs> and because this man was wearing a mink coat and and he was dressed as a, as a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the judges screamed, yeah, it buttons on the left, meaning that's a women's fur coat. Exactly. And and all hell broke exactly. loose. Exactly. All buttons hell broke on loose. the left. And it speaks so much to, like I was saying, the idea of choosing your family in the drag families. And and as is communicated well in Paris is Burning, people who, I mean, a lot of us say we choose our our families as we get older. Um, I think it, I, I do think it has more significance in gay culture in that time period as well. Um and people who were really displaced from their homes choosing families and then they take the same last name as their drag family it's, it's, and it's, it's like a, a non-violent joining a gang 
it it could be seen that way yeah. um, with language and costumes and 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 an adopted family because mm-hmm. you were shunned. Although I think probably fewer gang members get kicked out of their house than in 1990, people did for uh, dressing as a as a woman it, or being flamboyantly gay. Right, right, um, and um, so that idea of solidarity and and the words dread. This is my drag mother. This is my drag. So, I mean, that's and it's very that, very real. The house of extravaganza. Yes, the house, the house of, of La Beja. La Beja. <laughs> yes. And that's the other part of it is to assign yourself the glamour or whatever status in life you may not have been born into. If you want to say your last name is Gucci, your last name is Gucci now, and that's it. (laughs) And which which house are you going to align yourself with and the status of that house and who are the legends in that house? I love this documentary because it just transported me to this other world, and I love love finding – nooks and crannies of mm-hmm. the world that you didn't know existed absolutely and, and i feel like the empathy that they brought through um of these people wanting to be seen and wanting to be heard and it's the reason i created this podcast is because i feel like those of us that live with mental illness our voices haven't been heard in a way that is three-dimensional right i agree so let's talk about your family your childhood you were raised by a single mother um, she was, from what I've I've read or what you've shared with me, um, not the most stable person. Nope, she's had uh, different diagnoses, plural. Um, generally, it was bipolar disorder. Um, there was someone who was convinced it was pure schizophrenia at one point, and it was very difficult because she. Uh, just did not take her medication. The bulk of my young life was spent as her taking care of her. Um, and just, you know, I always say I never blame my mother for her illness. I blame her for having two small children and not trying to do better. I think that any of us has any number of situations, diagnoses, illnesses, Never blame anyone, but to choose, I mean, I can remember vividly just begging her to take her medication. She's like, oh, it made me break out or something like that. You know, things that I'm going to go ahead and call superficial um, when that maybe there's a situation that needs to be controlled. So she knew that she qualified as somebody that should be taking their medication. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing I hear frequently is because the uh, medications for schizophrenia can be so, create such lethargy and weight gain Mm -hmm. that a lot of people, uh, you know, which is the lesser of the two evils, walking around like an overweight zombie or um, pushing away those I love. Uh, That is a big one too with the weight and a lot of it with her manifested as what I would call vanity, um, wanting to look a certain way and being more concerned with weight and shape. And again, everyone's situation is different. Um, I'm not someone who has children, but I can only imagine, and I've seen it in my life. I've seen it where someone feels that they're out of control. They ask for help. They have asked, maybe someone has to take care of the children. We were in a situation where she, because of, vanity because of narcissism would push people away no either i'm fine you know and then have a very violent manic episode be hospitalized i would take care of my brother and just come out of the hospital and carry on was it just the two of you you and your Mm -hmm. brother um talk about uh a manic episode talk about the the instance that you're talking about and what you would be thinking and feeling what it would feel like to be in your skin um when I 
the, the she was very violent when she was having an episode um and it she took a lot of it out on me is just the fact of the matter um she uh, had her first hospitalization and uh, in, in trying to i mean I, there was a time when i was really trying to fix her and, and that was my entire focus in life that was my whole youth um so i would talk to my grandmother you know what was she like and this and that and they would just say oh she's always a little off kind of thing but um my parents are both west indian i think culturally they are not as invested in mental health, in moods and emotions. It's you go to work, you do your job, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, By the way, we had a, a former guest, uh, Karma, uh, who is West Indian, and she mm-hmm. talks a, a lot about the, the West Indian culture. Yeah, it's and I love my culture. I love it. And I think a component of it is just that it's not, in my experience, in my family generations back now, investigating it even, they're could be so much mental illness that no one addressed or diagnosed it's you you know move on and um and religion plays a part too um where you just pray over it and okay but um for me uh my my parents divorced when i was seven um i am the older of the two my brother's five and a half years younger than me and my mother's first serious serious hospitalization was my birth and now we know about postpartum postpartum depression we know about those changes but um i'm old enough hello (laughs) that then uh it wasn't as known and couple that with a family that doesn't maybe want to dig deeper and they just put her in a hospital for the first like many months of my life and my godmother took care of me and there was that so um uh, and psychologists uh, would say that you missed out on the physical mm-hmm. bonding which right. is I've read, so incredibly exactly. important exactly so being that nerd dealing with this stuff uh, in you know my sort of elementary school junior high school years i read all of this stuff on it and wow that early yeah. Oh, yeah. I. It was. Uh, you are I, such a type A. I am. Oh I my am. god. And I also had pure insomnia, so I would just stay up reading and then go to school and perform fine. I skipped a grade in school and everything's fine there academically. Just not sleep. I can't. And, I can't <laughs> imagine what a burden. And this is just me reading into it. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I can't imagine what a burden your perfectionism must be. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> that's a good way to put it and I'm trying to be freer of that and feel like I have more control um, but it's tough it's really I'm just used to a different set of standards I mean than... you had to be to survive <laughs> yeah. you had to consider every detail yes. you had to your brain no wonder you have insomnia your brain had to be spinning as a child to survive exactly and which is why I say it's not about blaming my mother it's not, not about all. that but i just uh, i wish people would be more cognizant of factors that is a simple truth if i grew up every single day as many of us did um evaluating every glint in my mother's eye every single thing that was going on um paying the bills so the lights wouldn't be shut off uh, doing basic things, making excuses to her bosses when she didn't show up to work, that kind of thing. I mean, I can remember being like 12 and meeting with her boss to explain the situation uh. because that's what it was. It had to get done. And I had to take care of my brother. And it, that's what it was. That just that breaks my heart <laughs> to think of a 12-year-old going to her employer to take care of I her. I remember sitting in the office, like pulling down my skirt, trying to be a 
professional. Because <laughs> um, she would miss chunks and chunks of, of work. Um, then finally they did like a, a combination, like she was sort of let go, but they gave her a sort of severance. She was a teacher and she attacked a student in a episode and they finally just had enough. But she was very beloved because that's the thing. Another thing that, um, you know, that affected my relationship with her is that um, she was very manipulative and it's, you know, I don't want to make people scared and like second guessing everyone they interact with, but she was sort of like the kooky music teacher and people didn't know you know, if she had set fire to our living room the night before, like how grave necessarily things were. And a lot of us know kooky people and that's fine. We can all be on the spectrum. But so people's, a lot of people love her and in that sense. And then I was very much painted as the bad guy because I was asking her to take her medication. (laughs) Um, So there was a very strange push pull there. When did you realize that that you weren't, did you realize back then that you weren't who she made you out to be or did you accept that shame and that blame and and question your integrity it, there was it, i would say both in between all of the above i it, it kind of fluctuated um something that i found really difficult that i chose to break as i told you was the secrecy she always wanted pure secrecy about everything especially her moods and her illness and that's something that we always argued with where I said and that's why I would want her to take a medication I would try to be as involved as possible because I was saying to her there's nothing wrong with it like that's not what you should be ashamed of what is the problem is that you're completely lying and you crashed the car last night and like those other things are the problem the there might be a difference in your brain chemistry okay, let's talk to these people. Let's do this, that, and the other and function without crashing the car. (laughs) Would it be fair to say that that you developed a suppressed rage about about this? Sure. I've had a lot of anger that I... I believe I've processed a healthy portion of that um, and worked through. But yeah, it's... it's, It was was very upsetting. It was a very... I had a really rough childhood. There's there's no two ways about it. What would you have liked to scream at your mom back back then? If you could go back to 12-year-old Pia and... There there were times when it got heated and and we did... Because she would scream at me and she would beat the crap out of me. and, And so there were a few times when I screamed back. And I did. I would say you have to do better. Um, this is not okay. Basically, I was just constantly trying to wake her up, so to speak. That even sounds suppressed to me, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know because I mean? also, and that's also in my nature is to do the task at hand. I mean, I you even asked that question. I go back to exact like specific moments when I was more concerned with shielding my brother, getting him to a safe place. He, I mean, I the amount of friends of his, you know, I would call his friends' parents. And just sort of say, you know, my mom's not feeling well. We kind of talked about it in casual terms. <laughs> not feeling well. Meanwhile, they can see there's an ambulance taking her out in a straitjacket, like up the block. Oh, you know, my God. it was just and I would and I was I'm very good at that. I'm the person you want if, you know, heaven forbid, there's a bad accident or something. I'm the person who will calmly wrap the tourniquet and just, OK, all right. Sometimes I have anxiety in basic everyday situations, but if things hit the fan, <laughs> I'm, this, I'm the same way. It's like when things get like tragic, mm-hmm. 
I hit this like everything slows down for me and I become uh, almost like more relaxed as mm-hmm. everybody around me amps up. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wake up with intense anxiety about having to go to the bank mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. But like when the earthquake hit and people were freaking out, exactly. I was I like went into this this mode like I we're, I'm going to figure this out. Almost like I was I was in my zone. I was in the zone I was made to be in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Talk about talk about that and and how you. It it's very true. I my entire youth was a series of very heightened experiences. Whether it was violence, I mean, the amount of times I've called nine one one personally and it's had to put my mother in an ambulance, that kind of thing, broken glass, all kinds of whatever injury stitches, whatever it is. I've seen more emergency rooms than, you know, basic things. But then like, you know, I didn't date until I was in my twenties. I didn't have very ordinary. I didn't, I didn't have very ordinary experiences and I still haven't. I still, you know, (laughs) for, for, for the listeners who haven't seen her picture, (laughs) Pia is, is very uh, attractive and, and, Put together, and um, uh, that is shocking to me. What? Because clearly, men were interested in you. Um, not really. I mean, I was a big nerd, like I said. Um, I didn't really have interest, or maybe if it was there, I wasn't paying attention. I was very focused on my mother all the time. Maybe you need to take the secretary glasses off and take the pin, <laughs> the pin out of your hair. I've just seen it on Cinemax movies and it, right. it's very effective. It's it's a very good path. Yes, yeah. I've seen that too. Um, no, I didn't at all and I don't have a lot of those um, sort of memories of high school or teenage life that other people have. I did, like I said, we were talking about Paris is Burning. I did have a good group of friends that I clung to that I discovered through performing. Um, and so I did have that escape and because I didn't sleep and my mother wasn't sufficient. I did go out and how, how much, have that. How much would you sleep? Um, it changed when I was 17, when I went to NYU until then I could go for like two full circles of day, night, day, night with no sleep. And and then I would sleep for like five or six hours like the following night. And it was just like a cycle. It was pretty intense. I would, would watch you, TV. I would read. Would you be feeling exhaustion and you just couldn't sleep? Or would you be feeling alert and awake and wanting to engage? I felt okay. I didn't feel exhaustion like I feel it now. And I remember I used to question. I felt like I was sick. I used to feel like I would <laughs> get see something on like 2020 or some random thing and be like, there's something very terribly wrong. I people are supposed to sleep. I just didn't sleep. My brain never stopped going. But do, you, um, do you think it was a mania or was it just insomnia? I think it was insomnia coupled with not taking steps to to shut down. It helped me to stay alert all the time and in case anything happened. Um, and then it changed as though someone had flipped a switch on the wall to where I couldn't get enough sleep within the cycle. Yeah. What, what it changed at 17. Oh, I mean, not, not in the cycle. No, no, no. The cycle went on for years and years. I see. So, so at 17, you no longer had the two days in a row of being awake. It was, you couldn't get enough sleep. All of a sudden. It was just. Was the was it depression driven or was it just your body trying to catch up? I I really think it was trying to catch up for like years and years. <laughs> it just felt so 
strange. And also, I was living in a dorm at NYU. And I think that when I think about it and when I questioned it at the time, it speaks to um, sort of socialization because I've always been so isolated and completely alone, which l- lends itself to, I mean, okay, this is what I'm doing. It, all right, and stay up at f- till four or five. Um, but for whatever reason, my roommate slept a lot. <laughs> And it was almost like someone like gave me a taste, like, you're just going to sleep? Okay, give that a try. And then I think my body was like, we have to sleep. (laughs) What did it feel like when you got to your college dorm? And there was a, I interrupted you about 10 minutes Mm -hmm. ago because I had a burning question. Um was there something else you wanted to add about about your your mom? I asked you to oh, give t- me a, the, a snapshot. The mania. Of, yeah, and what it felt like you um, know, to be that kid when your mom would have these these episodes. I went like I said. I I was constantly evaluating her moods, her you know sort of where she was, and and it was, my first thing was to make sure my brother was okay, um, and then. Um, because there was a time when she lost him that was very terrible for me. and To the foster care system? No, no, no. Just took him out one day <gasps> and then came back without him. What? And he was, he was, I, I mean, I've probably suppressed it to where I, I, he was like three. And just, I mean, it didn't take long to find him, but he was just on the street. I mean, I, and that's the kind of thing where I say, I'm going to go ahead and say that's unforgivable. You know, I don't really care anymore what your problem is about the medicine made you break out, whatever it is, or have the courage to send us to live somewhere else or whatever it is, that kind of thing being a regular occurrence, not acceptable. The fact that I, I mean, I can remember walking, leading a police task force. This is what happens when I, you know, I just come home from school and this is the situation I'm in where I'm combing the streets looking for my little brother. So um, that was just a random but she would just be very violent and throw things and break things and... Would she hit you? Yeah. Yeah. Would um, you defend yourself or would you just take it? No, I just took it. And mostly because of that practical thing of like, okay, you know, is it business hours? Do I call her psychiatrist? Do Is it after? Do I, you know... Can she be reasoned with at all? Did I do something to set her off? Or is it, you know, all of these things. Did you ever consider just rope-a-doping until she wore herself out and then just beating her ass? <laughs> I can't say I considered it in the moment. Yeah. Perhaps in it's hindsight. It's not a bad tactic. Perhaps in hindsight. Once her arms start, start to drop, <laughs> that's when you move in, you you work on the legs, you work on the core, you, you hit the bread basket. And you break them down, and then you go for the headshots. That's amazing. I need to teach kids that in first grade. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it, uh, it just, it was very, it was very, very, very bad. The, I mean, I'll tell you the worst time of it. I, when I, I was, I just turned 17. It was right after my birthday, and I had gotten into NYU early decision, and it all happened within like a day. Um and she, I got the letter from them and that was the only place I wanted to go. And she was excited as she should have been. And she high-fived me. And I remember in that minute, I was like, that high-five was a little too forceful. And like, I just, I wanted to enjoy my moment and call my best friend, you know, and, and I probably should have taken action then. And it was the worst episode. It was the worst time. And that's what, 
my life at the time taught me. I can't enjoy anything for myself. I have to make it about her because had I nipped that in the bud, what happened next wouldn't have happened, which what happened next was horrible, horrible. She, that was, let's say the afternoon. And then I was with my friend and then came home evening, whatever. Um, And I had actually drifted off to sleep. This was a rare night, but I remember the TV was on, so I wasn't like sleeping, sleeping. And she came up into my room, put a knife to my throat and it was just, I so, I just the calmest scenario ever. Just both of us were just very calm. And I was just like, what, what is this? You know, like, honestly, if you're going to do it, do it. I just, it was just such. Don't do it with a butter knife. What yeah, are you, it, stupid? <laughs> it was just such, not even resignation, but like fatigue. Like, you're awful. And just, I, I can't, you know, I can't believe you're my mother. What, and what, what was the look on her face? Very blank. It was very blank. So I also, I think that some part in my brain was not scared first because I de- I felt that she was doing some sort of emotion, I guess, to scare me or I don't know what, but it didn't feel like was, she was about to. Was her, uh, was her body language like relaxed or was it kind of tense and aggressive? It was kind of in the middle. Like it was, it was very, um, very pedestrian. Just, I'm. Um, just walking across the room with this knife and you're laying down and now here it's at your throat sort of we're going through these motions and we just both stayed there like that for a while what did she say um she didn't say anything and i just felt i was trying to look into her eyes to see if she was in there at all and you know sort of assess where we go from here um and did she know that it was you that she was doing this to i think so i think so um, and throughout the years when she, she would never remember her, her episodes, which I know that's, that's the case sometimes, but she, would, would she believe it when you recounted them to her? That's the issue. She sometimes yes. And sometimes no. And because of that additional frustration, I sometimes just took the easiest way out just clean up the broken glass, whatever it is and move on, which is not it was not the most healthy thing for me because it was just taking everything on but um yeah she she and then she just left the room that night and i as i was laying there i i i got more amped up and frightened and upset and all that after she left the room mostly because it was like okay what do i do now um and i didn't really have time to think about what to do now because she called 911 and she told them that I was suicidal and they, so they came. So I, the next oh. thing that happened, it happened very quickly was police like rushing in and restraining me as I was telling them about her, but she's the adult in the situation and very convincing. And I mean, I had notebooks full of teenage poetry that they, for them to go through and <laughs> they paint that kind of bleak picture. And the wild thing is as up and down, cause as, cause someone at some point I've been in and out of therapy since I was, I think the first time was like nine or something because of my mom being so extremely ill at some point, some social worker that we dealt with was like, you should be talking to someone. Um, 
So I knew, you know, I'd had bouts of depression at that age, but had never been suicidal at that age. At that time, I had just gotten into my top choice school, spent the day with my best friend. Like, I couldn't have been more happy or stable. And the irony of, of the timing was... It, is is unspeakable really but um yeah so they uh were taking dragging me out and the more i protested the more unstable i seemed because that's how life works and i was so it's like a like a a bad movie like you're like that would never happen i know and i've had people tell me like i should write a book about my mother i should we should make it a movie i'm like people don't even believe stuff. um i didn't want them to leave her with my brother in that state so i was just you know i i mean literally kicking and screaming two cops pulling me and i was like in pajamas they wouldn't let me put on clothes because they wouldn't let me be in a room by myself um and my mother's just parading up and down clearly in a manic state to me just talking about god and and me and the demons and all this um but she could also look like an upset mother you know a religious mother whose child is right gone off the rails so it was really a very um that that scenario had a lot of impact on my life because it was really awful and you know they finally she started throwing things and and just clearly like again with the breaking glass and and so they finally realized bad movie like the keystone cops they're holding me by each arm and i'm going see see and and you know so i they let me call uh someone to to take my brother and this is the middle of the night of course um and the neighbors are gathered outside it's it's you know naturally fun show again um and so they decided they were going to take her in too so we had to ride in the ambulance sitting opposite each other with this cop like monitoring us um just staring across from each other and i was trying to get her to talk just to see kind of where she was mentally. And she was very, she just had gone sort of catatonic. Um, and we got there and it just, just a random plot twist in this kooky sort of B movie that I was in. She signed the papers for them to, to commit me. And I, she was the adult. She was my mother. So that was that. And we had to sit separately while they waited for transport. It had to, like, we'd gone through the night and the whatever transport comes at, like, 8 in the morning or something. So I was just sitting, you know, on this bench in the psychiatric ER. And I was trying to tell them that I felt okay, that she was having an episode. I don't know if she was getting back at me or really just very detached. But this is the situation. No one would believe me. And to this day, if you want to get me upset, just tell me you don't believe me when I'm telling you this. I will walk away because I, I mean, I can't even explain to you. They would, it was like a video game. They would take me at like higher levels of psychiatric professionals to try and plead my case. So I would go into a room in my pajamas and try to be composed and explain to them that I was feeling quite fine, actually. And did you hear my good news? I got into NYU and they'd go, well, then why did your mother say so-and-so, you know? And I would say, well, this and that. And I will never forget the highest level of they waited for whoever to come into work in the morning so I could talk to that person. Because it's very difficult, paperwork-wise, to go against one of those um, 7220 or whatever it's called. Mm. Um, 
so they needed like the most concrete reason, which I understand. That's the thing is I get it. This is how seriously I take mental health. I understand that they could be held liable if something happened. You know, it's a very big deal. So it sucks that my mother did that. Um, And at the highest level, like the director of psychiatry, and I'm telling him the story and so exhausted. And I started crying because it was awful. And he goes, if you're not sad, then why are you crying? And if I could like rip his bowels out <laughs> and strangle him with them, I would have. I and I just realized I was you I were was fucked. completely fucked. So um yeah, so I just had to wait for transport. Um uh, my mother was still there, um, playing the role of loving mother, but not talking to me. Um, talking to other people to get sympathy. And then I guess someone set her off or something. She was sort of down, like I could see her in my peripheral vision. And then there was a big scuffle and a commotion. And I heard like security and I knew what had happened without even looking. She did attack someone. She got very physically violent and she's a large woman and she cocked a nurse. And I mean, <laughs> that's, I don't know why or what, but all of a sudden it was a flurry of get the hell doll and then sedate her and this and that. So, Finally, after like 12 hours of pleading my case, a few people were like, oh, she might be right. But it was too late. The bus was on the way, you know, all of it, whatever. So I spent three days in a facility in the most positive, well-balanced, well-adjusted state of mind ever I've experienced in my life is when I was locked up. And it was a really, really surreal experience because... It's like there's that little shred of doubt and having had times of depression that people knew about, everyone in my life was like, did you really, you know, no, it was that little shadow of doubt that destroyed me to where I, because you can't convince someone otherwise, you know, and being in there, it was really, really rough. So there were moments when you were in there where you thought maybe... I'm supposed to be in here? Uh, actually, no. That's okay. how that that's how sure I was that the, that was the only time when I wasn't. Oh, okay. But ha- the reactions of people, of my friends, uh, you know, in telling them the story, they're like, "But really, were you really?" Try-? And I'm just Which like, brought up that no, thing of not being just, believed. I bet. Yeah, that. Has, Did you feel rage? Absolutely, absolutely, because it's and I really, you know. Shakespeare said it best. He thinks the lady doth protest too much. That protesting too much always looks ridiculous. <laughs> There's no way to say you have to believe me. Like, you know. Do, do you get anxiety to this day when you're telling something, and do you look for nonverbal cues that somebody might not be believing yep. you? Absolutely. What, what describe in your body what comes up when you begin to see that it's poss- that they might possibly not be be- believing it's, you? It's like a tightening of the throat. For me, um, and I can be very um, sort of friends of mine joke that I get a very like a very professional demeanor or like like a lawyer, they call it like, oh, you're going to court where it's like I will sometimes rely on facts or if I took a picture of my phone, I'll just casually offer that as evidence, you know, because I very often have that feeling. It goes right back to that feeling of being on trial and, and having being like cross-examined. I don't like that at all. However, b- 
because I've experienced it, I, and I'm because I'm on the lookout for it, I'm actually good at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, you know, you're, the, you're, you're uh, the weekend update thing on your YouTube <laughs> channel. Uh, as I was watching it, I was just like, the, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who can spit out a torrent of words <laughs> perfectly articulated. Uh, were you reading from a teleprompter? On a few of them, I am. On the the Nick Cannon one, some of them are just so many. A lot of the time, I memorize it, but some of them are I do just on my laptop. I can yeah, kind of. But but it was still like a wow. This person has a tremendous amount of um, m- mental uh, fortitude. Like I, you know, in the 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 part of me that recognizes the coping mechanisms that children have to be able to cope. I was like, this, this woman has been forged like a steel, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like a steel blade. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what happened in her childhood that, that this intellectual ferocity is, you're an intellectually ferocious person. Um, I'll take that. All right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, and the professional demeanor. And it is you could very easily play a newscaster, a good newscaster, mm-hmm. not a not a, a cheesy newscaster. Um, so that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but it must it must kill you when when that button gets pushed that somebody doesn't believe you. Yeah, yeah, and I'll I'll go to and I know how. I mean, I personally feel that it's unpleasant to treat day-to-day personal interactions as a courtroom trial. So I'm aware of it. And I'll say, you know, I don't want to feel the need to have evidence, but I do just in case you need it, you know? Um, But yeah, it really goes back to that sort of not being believed. But I will say there's also the, uh, a cherished memory. I mean, if we have to deal with that, I love those because (laughs) relationships are so complicated with our, especially with our caregivers. I think it's really important for us to to share what was positive about them and what was beautiful or is beautiful about them. So talk about the... the Well, I was just going to say a super specific thing was when I was in the mental health facility that I was in, the other people that I was in with, because it was a young, it was a children's place or teenagers, um, were so sweet and cool and, and really nice to me. And sort of for, for those three days, um, it was, it it was, it was comical because I remember one guy saying it was like sort of group therapy that was going nowhere. And this kid just raised his hand and was like, I just have a question. Why is she here? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, felt awesome. It was just funny. And bless him. He was so cute. And he was like, I am crazy. She doesn't need to be here. Wow. Me, yeah. What did that no. feel like when he said that? Um, just the teeniest bit of vindication. <laughs> and in, in a context that doesn't matter at all because I was already there and it was already like a complete nightmare and I had to deal with my father because he was the only person that they could call. I mean, it was a whole nightmare, but a little little glimmer. So those things do happen. Where was your dad in all of this? Um, he lived very close by and just was not a very active participant. He had a lot of... Um, well, the way I see it is that he had a ne- negative reaction to the custody 
situation, the litigiousness of it. Um, again, it, it culturally going to court and all of that, you know, he, I know that my mom left him uh, like in the middle of the night, she packed us up. It was one of those situations. Um, so he, they would probably still be married if, you know, he was very much at his choice. Yeah. And he was definitely had a lot of denial and just would say, Oh, your mother gets sick. Like that kind of thing. Like literally that's all that, that's the full extent to which he addressed it. Um, but so I'm not saying like it's, he's perfect in this. It's not about that at all. It's just very complicated and ugly and they're both very human and, and there it is. Um, but he lived close by and we just didn't see him. And I know a lot of it was from my mom and it was just this weird round robin of he would, I know he tried to make contact and my mother was a nightmare and then he would pull away, but he also felt that she was speaking negatively, negatively about him to us. And when we did see him there, I couldn't because of his own ego problems and, and self-esteem problems. He couldn't hear me when I said like, don't you like, I don't take anything she says seriously. <laughs> well, I wish you would understand that. Like, we just want to see you. So, this was before cell phones. He had to go through her, basically. But it was a, a terrible cycle where he felt that she was in the way I see. more than she was. So it was like he couldn't he didn't, couldn't summon the energy to jump through the hoops that she was placing for right. him to be have access to you. Right. And you don't feel like that's you letting him off the the hook. I'm asking you. I'm not. Right. I'm not inferring that. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm because a lot of times I think, and maybe it's just because we've had a flurry of quote unquote crazy moms mm-hmm. um, as as issues mm-hmm. with people, and I, I wonder sometimes if we're not letting the the fathers off the the hook. No, sometimes. absolutely. I always say my mother is was the more colorful one, clearly. But if I have to gander, I mean, if I had to guess, my father has some undiagnosed something going on for sure um he's serious serious problems connecting um and really really withholding of love um just you know and and again i spent a lot of time learning about his upbringing and his family and and why and all this and then i got to a certain point where i was like i'm not so sure i'm gonna put all that much energy into your why? Because the result is that I would love it if you could acknowledge maybe loving me, your firstborn child or something. Like, I don't need to do all of this research into what happened seven generations ago on an island. I'm very sorry that that happened, <laughs> that you had a shitty upbringing, but the result is now so do I. And your upbringing is not my responsibility. But mm-hmm. guess what? You Mine made is it. yours. So either, you know, roll up your sleeves or get off the... <laughs> yeah but um i mean that's a very apt question i've asked myself that a lot and he and i have spoken a lot more lately um and he i think he's seen the error of a lot of his ways and it's not about you know cracking the whip like you should have done this you should have done mm-hmm. that but i've said very simply you know children don't really i mean i was very smart but even so adult drama is not what we're thinking about. If my father lives 10 minutes away and I don't see him, you're really not going to convince a child <laughs> about your personal drama. Unlovable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I have had that conversation. Um, you know, he feels bad about certain things. I'm not feeling bad, but it's just, let's call it what it is. Let's be 
honest. And, and, and I think that it's not necessarily that I think some people think, well, I don't want to blame my parent. I don't want them to feel bad. That's not the point of it. It's expressing what you're feeling. Right. And you can express the hurt that you have in a way that isn't filled with with blame and shame. Right. You can, you know, you can even preface it by saying, look, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. There are many things that you gave me, if, if it's the truth, that, you know, I, I, I cherish and, and I respect, but I have to get this off my chest because right. it's eating at me. Exactly. Um, talk about, unless there was some, some more that you wanted to talk, and I relate very much to because I have trouble getting in touch with anger at my dad i I have compassion that he had a terrible childhood Mm -hmm. and he did the best that he could his dad was verbally abusive his dad was you know would kind of almost emotionally torture uh his his kids and i think the best my dad could do was to just sit on the demons in his head because he probably wanted to lay into us he probably wanted to say really mean shit Mm -hmm. but you know, my dad stood by and watched my mom paw my ass and mm. treat me like a spouse and all this other stuff that was really kind of gross. And sometimes in therapy, it'll come up and I'll be like, why the how the fuck can you let that happen mm-hmm. to your child? How can you just sit there and and ignore it? But it's a really hard thing to get in touch to. It's it, it, it's almost like we we just focus on the the, the wheel that was the, the squeakiest, you know, right. the one that that was in our face, not the one that kind of turned their back. Right. That's why I um, always say my mother was definitely sort of in the the Technicolor zone but my father as well and i did get to a point of because we my father and i didn't speak for like years uh, when i was trying to be an independent person and, and shed myself of my mother's care completely and then also part of it was not maintaining what felt like a bullshit relationship and then i did the, the sort of classic thing of writing him a long letter um and when i saw him he denied everything in the letter he, he felt it was a work of pure fiction but we did sit down and talk um, and, um, you're right. There are, along with the questions of my mother doing this and all the brightly colored antics, um, as a spouse, he could have stepped up. He could have insisted upon care. He could have acknowledged the illness. He could, all sorts of things that are infuriating. Let, uh, let's take a little break right here and give some love to, uh, our sponsor for this episode, which is Blue Box. They are a, a sample box delivery service and they're focused on health so every month for 10 bucks they will send you um fortify vitamins supplement or nutrition products for you to try um and if you take a survey and tell them what you think about them uh short survey you get 10 bucks right back in rewards points and you can use reward points to uh, purchase your favorite products at full size uh, at buluebox.com um some of the stuff that they shipped me that I really liked was a delicious low sugar protein bar made by Pro Max um, and a hemp protein superfood called Hemp Force Choco Maca. It makes the most delicious smoothie you will ever, ever taste. Um, so yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's a it's a great service. Go to uh, bulubox.com. That's B-U-L-U-B-O-X.com. And look for the microphone in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, click on it and then enter the promo code Happy Hour again. Bluebox.com. Look for the microphone in the top left corner and enter promo code Happy Hour, and you will get uh, your first month 
your first box free for uh, for doing that. Talk about some nice moments that you had with your with your parents, if there if there are any. Um, definitely huh. um, more with my dad. <laughs> are there any fun, the fun memories with your mom where you felt? You know what? Mother's Day was. Uh, what seven nine nine days ago mother's day is awful for me every single year and this year i thought i was gonna write something and i started to write something and it came out garbled and ridiculous um and i decided not to ridiculous in what way too angry or insincere or uh i say ridiculous because it was um well it, it was very 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 long and in this goal would have been for for exo jane and so ridiculous meaning i there's i can't i'm writing a book so if i'm gonna write a book i should just do that did you get did you get lawyery on her um i no no, actually no No? it was more it was very straightforward and more of a like you know mother's day is not a day of celebration for some of us and Mm -hmm. that's okay too and you I've know, always hated Mother's Day and Father's Day I, and Father's Day. Ditto yeah. Father's Day, and that's just a reality. So, you know, but in in illuminating specific reasons, it veered off into like science fiction and <laughs> yeah, in 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 experiences that I've had. Um, but because of that, I really earnestly sat and tried to remember good times, and I really could not. I really couldn't. I could remember civil times. I could remember. Um, time spent I genuinely I'm not saying that they weren't there I'm not saying it didn't happen but you can't remember them I really tried I really sat and it was just wow you know these days um she had she had sort of a a real psychotic break um, probably a decade ago and has been very different ever since to where it's not the ups and downs that she had um, she is medication free because she has also changed, intensified her views on religion and feels that she doesn't need this, that, and the other. Um, she just needs Jesus. And she is in an assisted living situation. Um, she's also married and her husband is crazier than she is. There's no other way to put it. Um, and together they're like some sort of intensified just problem they're just does a he, problem does he live with her in the assisted mm-hmm. living um he's not supposed to be there but yeah. um so we our communication is very limited she does that feel good up and down you know i have to try to get and this is what i was also Do you feel guilty i feel so much guilt that's what i was about to say is that i was writing about is that i can be i mean I'm extremely rational. I'll have you know, Paul. <laughs> um, and I realize how irrational it is, but I'm also very, very honest, and I feel extremely guilty. And it's just about managing it. Um, it's 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 always been in me. It's abated a bit. There's been a little progress, but it's always there. It's always there. The the pop songs, yeah, oh, I love my mama. Okay, great. You know, it's, it's, I feel it's just make me jealous, oppressive. Do, yeah. See, I it don't even go there. No. I don't even go there. I feel grateful that I made it through. I had I had a great like, you know, like I said, my friends and people to kind of help me along the way. Um, 
So I don't go to a place of jealousy at all. I understand it, of course. I understand completely. Um, but the guilt really, really weighs heavily on me. It's a feeling of less than. Like What's, I feel. What are the the phrases that your the mean part of your brain say to you? That I I feel wrong. I feel like there's a mold. Like you're supposed to love your mom. And you don't, so that's your fault. You're, you're, a bad you're wrong person. for that. Yeah, you're you're evil, and you're not loving like you're supposed to be loving. And you, you know, it seems strange to other people. This is the voice in my head, mind you. Um, I have the exact same voice, by the way. Yeah, it's just a, it's just that, fe- and it's so it's where I question myself and where I say, okay, this is a part of my brain because it's not logical. And that's something that is a big push pull with me. And like you're saying before, of, of distinct making this distinct distinction, excuse me, between situational and, and chemical or things that are going on, um, is that I do look for that evidence, like I say, of of okay, if that's what you're thinking, let's go to exhibit A, please, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the jury. Where did that happen? That I'm a bad person because you know, or I'll try to say, okay, so. This person uh, physically endangered you, held a knife to your throat, just trying to go to like the most practical, tangible things. It might make sense that you feel hostile or, or whatever. Still, guilt has the louder voice. It's such a motherfucker. There. It is guilt is just. Yeah. It's a giant. Yeah. It's a giant. Uh, I want to pick up on the thread uh, about when you got to college and you started sleeping. What did it feel like? You know, having been an isolator and all of a sudden you're in this kind of intensely social environment, what did it feel like? What were your thoughts and feelings your first semester there at school? The, um, it was good. I, the, the, the distance was good. And being in New York, I didn't actually have to live in the dorm. from your... From my mom. From your mom. Yeah. Um, so... I, just because I got a scholarship, that was a part of it. And I was just like, yes, absolutely. I'll live there, of course. Um, and the extrovert in me came out. You're and, still on the same island that your mom's oh, living on. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I was, su- it was suddenly like, oh my goodness, there are people and we're doing similar things and have similar interests. That's amazing. And, you know, cause even having good friends, I still would retreat and be alone so much of the time. I mean, I took care of my brother in like a motherly fashion, but we didn't hang out. Like we, we couldn't stand each other until we were much older. <laughs> it was like, you know, clean your room. And I made this for dinner and, you know, um, and then I would have my books and, and that's it. So being in thrust into that environment, and like I said, I sort of took on a lot of things um, in a people pleasing way, not in sort of a, a sponge type of a way, but in a like, oh, yes, let's do that, too, kind of thing. And was in hugely social, every party, every thing, um, but still in a bit of a mothering way. Like all through my life, people in social groups call me like mama bear or something like, because that's what I'm used to. I'm, I'm usually, you know, I have band-aids in my purse right now. If anything happened, I have Neosporin and alcohol wipes and I'm that person. And I'm sure because you know, then you don't have to look at what you're feeling. <laughs> and and it's also a role that's comfortable that... And you play very well. Yeah. So why step out of that? Why be the person going on a date when I can be the person picking out the outfit and ironing it for the roommate who's going on a date? Because that makes sense to me. 
Um, and so that's where I say, I don't know if I turned away from, I mean, I've always had a lot of longing and people just generally don't approach me for dates. That's just a fact. Um, and they never did like historically, like it's just, that's, I'm very tall as you saw. Um, but that, especially being at school, um, kind of jumped into the social life and, and, and having a good time, but also studies. And so are you telling me a guy never asked you out in college? No, not that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm speechless. I don't know what to tell you. It's true. I wonder if you j- just, uh, you know, other than being tall, I wonder if 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 you're because you carry yourself in a way that is very self assured and is very, um, you know, if someone were to just listen to you talk for a couple of minutes they would get the feeling that, A, this person is very nice, but if I said the wrong thing to them, (laughs) they would be able to tear me a new asshole in a way that I probably couldn't come back. um, I I couldn't verbally compete with this person. And I would imagine, um, at least to me, if I picture myself as a college kid, Mm -hmm. um, I think it would have intimidated the shit out of me because I tended to go for the 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 girls that I felt like uh, I was more powerful than yes. you know who yeah. who and I think there's also something genetically in in us that men like to feel more powerful than the than the um, women and I know that's that you know there are many exceptions to that but I think genetically. So maybe maybe that explains some of it, but God, that's just um, that's just shocking to me. And I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. It truly is uh, shocking to me. It's so, you know what? I'm going to be completely honest. Sometimes it's shocking to me too. Yeah. And and that's just it's. But that's the truth. Did of it. it hurt? Absolutely, it still does. It hurts constantly. So you're still not getting asked out? No, I did, like. I had a random, <laughs> random um, guy, and this is, and I do get approached for like uh, people like to say things about the way I look, but in terms of I would be interested in spending time with you, that's what I don't get. I get hey baby, hey mama, all that stuff, um, and it's funny because I usually back up. back up. You you, I didn't understand what you just said. I get meaning that I get a lot of attention. That is usually hypersexualized and like comments about my appearance. I see, but you don't, but you don't get it in in a. I see you as a person other right. than a body. Exactly. Okay. Um, exactly. And I've been I've taken steps. You're actually looking at what I'm calling the new me, new mm-hmm. me, whatever. But because um, I generally overdress, which is another thing that came from childhood. We had to like put on a a good look for the outside world when things are crumbling inside. Especially on Sunday. Yes, especially on Sunday. And it was the kind of thing of like no jeans, like really sort of extreme gloves to church and and such. Um, And I've carried that with me forever. And so like for me to come here today in I'm wearing leggings and a t-shirt and sneakers, I feel I look like a casual person. And this feels like a a get up to me. I'm more comfortable in heels and really, yeah. But then I and and this is why I say it's the new me because I'm I'm doing what I can to be more comfortable overall. Um, 
it feels comfortable. I'm using air quotes, comfortable to be in the heels and, and, and hose and the whole thing and a proper like dress blouse. Um, comfortable or protective? Or- well, see, this is the thing. Comfortable in air quotes because I'm used to it because it's my go to. Comfortable because- emotionally or comfortable physically? Uh, comfortable emotionally and physically, I think really? out of heels, habit. Heels, yeah. comfortable physically. Well, here's the thing. I can recognize the discomfort, the physical discomfort. Sneakers are more comfortable, but what's most comfortable to me is feeling like I look right. That's what I mean. Emotionally. So, right. Yeah. So, so, so I'll go to a place of just letting the foot pain go if I feel like that's what I'm right. supposed to be wearing in that environment. Because the emotional comfort overweighs the physical right. discomfort. Right. I got gotcha. you. But then at the same time, the physical, it, it, it's very warped. I recognize that it's warped and it's just based on experience of this is what it's supposed to feel like. You're not supposed to feel comfortable living your life. Duh. Like that's not how I was raised. Wow. <laughs> You're supposed to feel pinched and cinched in and whatever oh the other things are. So in, in being an adult who makes my own choices, um, I feel physically comfortable in what I'm wearing. <laughs> emotionally it's actually quite uncomfortable for me to dress casually unless i'm like at the gym or being like physically active how are you feeling right now sitting here i feel comfortable you're awesome oh thanks um but i will say i'm aware of it. i'm aware that i'm wearing sneakers outside of a gym like that still feels after years of trying to make myself you know less feel sloppy ridiculous (laughs) um i'm aware of it I really am. And I thought about I thought about it of, of you know, wearing something professional here today. Um, I didn't really feel a need. I'm glad you didn't, because I would have <laughs> felt like that was a wall that, mm-hmm. that I had to to get through. Mm-hmm. And honestly, when I when I watched your YouTube thing, I, I it gave me a little bit of pause because I was like, I think th- I think her coping mechanism has been her intellect, and that is often the most difficult type of person to get to open up because sure. they're they have difficulty getting in touch with their emotions. That's that's what I used to be like, and it's what my my dad was like. Yeah, and um, and my dad too, very yeah. very smart, and I think that's where I get my brainiacness from. But I would never come in here like that, like right. my in my videos and such. That's a and the fact, yeah, and the fact that you're a performer, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you clearly want to express the inner life. And I think something about me that I've experienced throws people is that I am quite honest um, about emotional states, about things that a, a lot of people find taboo to talk about. And so even when I am in my, we'll call it more buttoned up outfits or something like that, I will still, in a heartbeat, say, whoa, my anxiety is off the charts right now, or whatever the situation is. And I know that throws people, because it's very, you know, I'm not, I mean, I I think people... It's too open for them, or they don't expect that coming from you? Both. I think people have an idea that I'm put together, however, I don't know how that comes across the way it does, but I hear that a lot, and I hear the intimidated thing a lot. So if I then crack a joke, or, or say something, you know... Um, or reference a mood or depression. It, it, it's I, I've seen the looks on people's faces when it's it's jarring for them. When was the last time you you cried alone, and when was the last time you cried in front of somebody? I I've I've had spectacular crying fits in the past week. Um, 
So those were both within the past like four four days or so. Um, last by, time I by yourself by myself was uh, those were in front of somebody. Both. Oh, okay. Both. Uh, by myself was last week Wednesday, and I was having I have a lot of trouble processing compliments to be honest um and i've written about that as well um i tend to want to argue with them and i'm old enough now that i know they just they don't know (laughs) they don't know that you're a fraud in in your eyes how dare you because you see all the mistakes the perfectionist all they see are the mistakes right and i have so little self-esteem and again i think that my, I, I, I go to the height because I hear about my height so often and I hear that I'm intimidating and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I always say it's, I don't have self-esteem. I just have good posture. There's such a difference. Oh my God. That is fantastic. <laughs> such a huge difference. You have to put that or make sure it's yeah. put on your headstone. I'm gonna, that's, I, that's all it is. I, it wasn't self-esteem. It was just good posture. That's it. I took dance class as a child. I stand up straight. That's it. If I cry myself to sleep. Um, so this you, was... Do, do you say something when you're crying? Um, sometimes. This you, time was bad. And so I was actively trying to calm myself down. And it happened because someone was complimenting me online. And it was on Twitter. And I, someone that I'd never met. And sometimes it gets to the point where I just want to say, like, I, you know please find a way to express your positive idea without also putting pressure on me. You know, I hear things like, why aren't you famous? And why aren't you? And that just feels like a dagger to my heart because it's super backhanded. It is. It's and, super and backhanded. I think that people, you know, I would never talk to an astrophysicist about why they haven't won such and such a prize. You know, I, if I don't know your field, I'm not going to assign my value judgment to it. And I think that entertainment has been made so accessible with reality and TMZ and whatnot. People think they know things. You know, why don't you just go beyond blank TV show? Yeah. Because you don't show up at the door and just say, put me on your show. That's why. Um, and other reasons. But anyway. Um, and, so, and they know that they don't mean it that way. Exactly. When they, when they compliment you. They're coming from a really good place. That's the rub. But and, they forget that we're obsessed with our, right. because we've asked ourselves that. If not, All why am day, I not famous? Day. Why am I not further along? And it All. just reminds you. Because maybe you just had a conversation with yourself that it doesn't matter. Be okay where you are. And then somebody is like, well, this is not right where you are. Exactly. And the rub of knowing that they mean well is is what's so hard because I can't say any of what we just said or I could but I've chosen not to to a stranger who has good intentions I want to see their good intentions and and f- and, and you're going to sound like you're either bitter or you have low self-esteem there's <laughs> exactly. no way to answer that. there's no way to answer it I mean I have some pretty good one-liners I'll tell you what you know I'm, I've yeah. gotten it enough at this point but um but it, it's just, it, it's maddening. And it came in a one-two punch with, I can't believe you're single, which is the same exact statement with mm-hmm. a different adjective. And I tell you, I was out, I was on my way to the gym and I just started crying and I couldn't stop because it was that frustration of wanting to, this person was sending multiple messages and I wanted to acknowledge that I saw them, but also that I completely cannot have that conversation and thank you for what you think is a compliment and let me go on about my business kind of feeling, um, you know, cause it, it just, there's so, it's such a terrible 
like pulling at that thread means the whole sweater comes apart. You know, I'm not going to explain the difference between wanting to do good work in this world and fame to you. Like yeah. all of, all of these levels, just my brain just, just, just hurt. And I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I went, I felt that I couldn't go be in public. Like I was having trouble stopping. Like I just mm-hmm. couldn't stop crying. It was just old school, like classic <laughs> crying fit and I was like 10 minutes from my little apartment and it was just I the second I got on the other side of the door just collapsed and re- literally on the floor and um in hindsight just to harken back to my mother again I say this is a single unmarried childless person and I would take steps to live differently if I had children, if I had responsibilities like that. You know, I make that distinction because I laid on the floor and cried for like an hour. And I pretty much, I I just, I just felt like I couldn't move. And I'm going to go ahead and call it a luxury. It's a luxury to be able to cry on the floor for an hour. Did you make animal sounds? Um, I I was, it was noisy crying. (laughs) There's something that feels so good about an animal sound. You know, when it comes out, when it comes from like your chest. From deep, the the deep, yeah. The best are ones are the ones that start at your asshole and then come, (laughs) come out through your nose. Then you know, you've, you've taken the longest highway. Right. The longest road. Um, and I just, I just lay there. I thought about calling a friend I thought about you know and I just really felt depleted and just felt very 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 sad and just lay there and cried after you were done did you feel any amount of uh, cleansing from it or did you still just feel shitty and like I'm just I'm tired of crying so I'm gonna stop um no I felt um really really exhausted it was a physical (laughs) you know an hour of crying that's a long time yeah and just a strange like uh, that the feeling of not uh, of of uh lack of control is very unsettling which is why in that moment i chose to just give up control especially to you here it is exactly i would imagine if 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 there's an addiction in your life, the, the big one has got to be control. There, it's for sure. So I, and that's why I, it's it's uh, counterintuitive to me. But I thought, you know what? I have this luxury to use that word again. I I give up. This is what's happening now. Here we are. Um, and so I was just really more exhausted than anything. Mm-hmm. And I kind of laid there after still. Um, and I put like my my gym bag that I had thrown down I like just put it under my head and just kind of laid there for a while and then I just gathered myself up and went off my face but yeah did you judge yourself while you were crying or did you embrace it or did you go back and forth back and forth I was gonna say both for yeah. sure both I do the same thing <laughs> for yeah. sure both um a lot of judgment I just because again as much as I am accepting that I am a person who has depression and anxiety. Um, I still have goals of being more functional than that. I'm going to go ahead and say in that, in that day felt very extreme. Um, but it's a part of me. It happened. It's real. I'm not going to deny it. And so there it is. That was Wednesday afternoon. It sucked, 
but <laughs> I got up and Wednesday evening happened and then Wednesday night and Thursday morning and you get the idea. Um, was there any point at which you felt like you uh, lightened your load? Yeah, I think with the when? with the when I was sort of laying in the aftermath, um, laying on the tear soaked carpet, just <laughs> sliding around in your own snot. Oh, so much snot! Snot happens sometimes, right? <laughs> How awesome does that feel though when you blow your nose after a cry? Yes, you can yeah. smell better. So, it's, <laughs> so yeah. much snot. Um, yeah, I just in the feeling of feeling. I felt very emptied, and then that took on what I'm going to call a positive hue of, of, okay, depleted, uh, out, you know, but it's like that thing of like to take a really good deep breath, you have to completely exhale first. Mm -hmm. So I tried to assign that little... On on the show, we like to say that crying is just your soul blowing a load. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So... The, I, the last thing, unless there's something else you want to share, um, the the last thing uh, I want to talk about, because it's such a, an important issue, is, um, and I think for those of us that had kind of abandoning childhoods um, or complicated relations with, with caregivers, is intimacy. What does intimacy mean to you? How... When was the last time that you got emotionally close to a guy that you were interested in or who was interested in you? Um, That was, um, and I do like women as well, just for what that's worth, just throwing that out there. Um, But I would say that was, it was within the past year. um, And I'd written about it, my exo Jane readers know all about it. (laughs) Because it was a big deal. Because I have not had a lot of intimacy in my life or, and I just, I just haven't, but it was really, it was when when, I, and when you say intimacy, do you, do you mean, um, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, um, you know, because we can hook up and it it doesn't mean anything, no hookups either. Right. In every sense of the word. Okay. Um, I don't judge people who enjoy random hookups. Exactly. That's just never been me. Okay. Um, so no, I would go for long stretches without having sex, a kiss, date, nothing. Um, not by choice, but it, but it's just true. So it had been a couple of years and then I had like an actual dating thing and I knew it was something when I believed his compliments. That's, it's that simple. Just the, just a basic compliment to me is like starting a war. Like, why would you say that? <laughs> I don't actually say it. That's what happens in my head. There's I, fireworks. I get that so deeply. <laughs> um, so, or or it's pure deflection. I'm the deflection queen. Um, but just to really sort of let something sit and just say, oh, okay. You know, and to feel it and to smile. Like, that's amazing. And I'm very grateful to that. And we had, a, we had a decent little run and then it was over. Did there come a point in... I mean, would would the word be appropriate? Did it did it expand your relationship with him? Did it stay at a certain level and it never got beyond that? Uh, in terms of your guys' commitment to each other and things you would share with each other, uh, you know what I mean? Did it? it uh, for, I hate this word, but it did it blossom. Did it blossom? It was okay. And you know what's interesting is that he, 
uh, is also one of the major forces that led to me writing the sadness shaming article. Um, because what started out as genuine interest sort of turned into, um, uh, well, you know, sometimes it's tough to be around if you're in a different mood or like that kind of thing. And it's like, okay, you can say that that's fine. But like, as in like, how do we deal with this? Or as in like, see ya like you're out the door kind of thing right, like um, your depression is a burden just letting you know right <laughs> you're, you're dragging me down exactly and you're on the clock exactly exactly um just just put it out there not yeah. gonna do anything about it not, not gonna think any further than this no critical thinking is engaged just gonna go ahead and say you're a bummer yeah. um but what i love that, you what that feel like sucked really sucked and it was a couple of and then there were other issues where it just seemed like oh, okay so you're not in this the way that i am in this and and uh yeah and if, if i could interject i think there's the, the thing that the both people the the loved one of the person who lives with the mental illness and the person with mental illness the most important thing is is that person who suffers from it taking responsibility, doing what they have control over in treating their depression? Exactly. And if the answer is no, I, I always encourage the loved one um, to stress that that is important and that's mm -hmm. a deal breaker. If that person isn't going to do what they have control over, take their meds if meds are necessary, go to talk therapy, what, what, whatever mm -hmm. is common knowledge. Um and if that person isn't doing that, I think that other person should feel no guilt about getting out of that relationship. Right. I agree. Um, and I'm not even sure, you know, if that person is doing all they can and it's still really difficult. I think you still have a right as a partner to say, I need more. Sure. You know, um, but that doesn't take the hurt away. It doesn't take the hurt away. And it also... What you just said is still dependent upon both parties being super honest and taking responsibility. So if there's deception on either side, that's where the problem comes in. Someone saying, oh, no, no, it's cool. It's okay. But really pulling away and feeling scared or freaked out or whatever, that's not going to work for anyone. And their um, actions are what matters more than their... Right. I mean, the words are nice. Right, right. Um, and like you said, taking responsibility, which I feel after, you know, growing up with my mom, I'm the sanest, crazy person you'll ever meet. I, <laughs> I take responsibility. I will cover my shit, you know, <laughs> I'll make it work. Um, but I'm not going to leave anyone in the dark wondering what's Pia going to be like when she comes home because I grew up with that. I'm not ever. You know what a mind fuck that yeah, is. Yeah. I'm not ever going to make anyone guess at my moods. You know, if I tell the truth and it's scary or it's awful, that's a different thing and we can handle it. But. I'm not, you know, I'm so hyper aware of not inflicting it on other people and being that burden. What would be a truth that you would share with a, a loved one or a partner that the average person might have difficulty expressing, but you express because you know you have that responsibility to let them know where you're at? Um, I think things with the self-esteem, particularly um, physical things where, you know, if I say I really feel so ugly today i feel like i i'm having trouble like being around other people um 
that I think that's I, I know that's scary for people or, or they don't understand. Um, but I get really, really down on myself and it gets in the way of daily life sometimes. So I have to call it out by its name. Talk about the things that you, um, about your physical appearance when you're feeling ugly, what do the voices in your head say? Uh, well, weight is the first one I've had, I've struggled with my weight my whole life and had real clinical eating disorders and had treatment specifically for that. Um, and I still find anorexia, bulimia, the um, whole, yeah, yes. Generalized eating disorder, GAD, but, um, I've fluctuated because when I was singing primarily, I, you can't throw up a lot, like it'll physically damage vocal cords. So it's more, um, was more anorexia, but then as I got older and wasn't singing primarily then bulimia, um, and also exercise compulsion, which a lot of people don't understand. So again, it's that thing of not being believed or not, you know, you don't know what it's like until you've seen, you know, I, I had a medical doctor looking at like actual damage that I had done, um, to have to explain it that way to other people. <laughs> um, but it's a real serious thing and with our culture being what it is. It's so pervasive to think, and, and I don't ever blame, I, I mean, everyone's experience is different. For me, it's from my upbringing, the way I feel about myself. I'm not the person who looks at magazines like, oh, that person, I don't feel pressure to be thin from magazines, from TV. I honestly don't. I feel it from myself. Um, but people, you know, like just the activity of going to the gym, I don't even talk about those kind of things online if I can avoid it because I know people latch on to like, oh, you go girl. Yes, that's, and you don't know, you never know why someone's doing something. You don't know why, you know, and, and if people can't understand it, have never experienced it. I respect that. But at the same time, please don't assume, you know, someone spending five hours in the gym with a penny under their tongue so they don't feel and taste things like that's, there are what? different, I don't want to, give the tips to people but um yeah if you have metal in your mouth you don't taste like you, you're not going to be wanting to you don't taste the key, ketones or yeah. what um you yeah you don't taste well you only taste that so oh so you don't crave food yeah oh okay <laughs> yeah because i know uh, there's been times when i've exercised before where i would all of a sudden get this taste in my mouth that mm -hmm. tasted like almost bloody and one of my friends said, that's your muscles breaking down. That's that's ke it, ketones. Um, yeah, it could be a part of the lactic acidosis process. Mm -hmm. um, sounds like it could be part of that. And you do you can tend yeah. to taste things. Um, I also had a cock in my mouth. I should mention that. <laughs> yeah. um, Something's got to inspire you to get on the treadmill. Something, <laughs> if you want to. Only, yeah. only get on the treadmill if you and want to. And the guy, actually, who I'm blowing, he's getting an upper body workout because he's <laughs> Keeping himself hoisted on top of the treadmill. <laughs> you know, I, I should have warned you before you came on. No, I've uh, listened to the show. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, no warning needed. <laughs> and that's that's another thing. People often, for whatever reason, think that I don't like talk dirty or something like they can't. I've had that so often that people feel like, oh, I didn't realize you curse. Come on. <laughs> I curse a blue streak. Please. Okay. All right. Um, anything you'd like to touch on before we uh, we wrap up? Um, what, what are the, the ways that you take care of yourself, the, the healthy coping mechanisms when your emotions get overwhelming? Um, the first one is honesty, call it out for what it is and, um, acknowledge by, it by sharing it with somebody else or acknowledging it to yourself or to both. myself or okay. what, but out loud sometimes helps me cause I am so often in my head. Um, 
and um, for me, especially lately, it's been a lot of writing, a lot of um, uh, creative endeavors. Sounds so goofy to say, mm-hmm. but but really, it's like um, for me, I love it, and I'm not you know on a show full time right now or something. So for me, right now, it's really important to my mental health. What little I have. <laughs> well, it's it, it also seems like you're using the gift that you have, um, which is your ability to express yourself while also letting some of the steam out. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? As opposed to just depending on your intellect while this the steam staying staying yeah. in. Yeah, there's. Uh, yeah, I guess I have a, a reputation. I, I can let people have it, as they say. <laughs> yeah, but go ahead. Uh, um, no, so so the writing, the what can I do to be more creative? Um, I also volunteer a ton. And it's it's that terrible conundrum that like, you can never really be selfless. You know, a lot of people say that because you're still coming about you. But honestly, it makes me feel good to get out of my head to be around other human beings who have more um, readily present needs that if I can meet something in the, in, in some tiny way, if it's a meal right now, if it's helping in whatever way, that's huge to me. And so I've really thrown myself into that lately. And I, th- and I think the difference between that and the people pleaser is the people pleasing often comes from a place of you're afraid of being disliked, whereas mm-hmm. the volunteer work is you are trying to make the world a slightly better place and maybe, you know, increase your self-esteem. But th- I think they come from two different different yes. places. Yeah. And I think that and, – and there's a um, – a couple places I volunteer, but one is a, a shelter specifically for homeless youth. And I mean, we know the statistics of people who are homeless, who have mental illness that's untreated or, I mean, it's huge. It's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So when we see them at 15, 16, 17, it, it could really be helped. It could be addressed in such functional ways. And to get, to be able to give a teenager the respect that I wasn't given even, and it's terrible to compare, but living in a home, you know, with a parent, but um, we're all people and we're all dealing with stuff and to look someone in the eye, you know, there, there are people who are in altered mental states sometimes mm-hmm. and there's still people and we just check in and say, you know, where are you today? And, and how you feeling? Do you feel like talking? Is eye contact happening? Is it not? These are real situations. We assess it. We deal with what it is. And I think that is true for all of us. I think some people don't want to admit it, but we've all got stuff going on. And I, and I feel like, you know, doing volunteer work or, um, you know, comforting somebody who's maybe younger than us, who is in something that we've walked through. It's like the closest we can come to getting in a time machine and going back and, and rescuing ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think as long as it's not compulsive. Right. Um, right. Because yeah. I recognize that too. There's no, you know, there's no honor in, being that complete martyr type like that's not something i think is functional yeah, or you know <laughs> yeah, you're eventually going to get burnt out and, yeah. resent- and resentful yeah and i recognize that in myself where i have to address it and nip it in the bud because i could just uh, that's that caring thing i could do that just that and never deal with myself <laughs> yeah sometimes it's okay to say no to somebody who's in need mm-hmm. you know it depends on where your battery is at and 
I, I think sometimes as people pleasers, uh, there's certain ego where we think we're the only person that can save the world. It's I remember learning that lesson. There's I mean, it just it just has to be said. There's no one person. No who can be that, who can do that. And there's no honor in being that. I wouldn't want to be. You know, I think it's very easy to think that along the way if we've grown up taking care of and doing this and that and the other thing. But no, the actual truth is if you sat this one out, you know, that's that's a very hard thing. It, it took a long time and, and takes present tense. I still yeah. deal with it. Um, but it's very, very true. You can sit this one out Superman, it's yeah. going to be all right. <laughs> well, you've clearly done a lot of uh, work on yourself, and you uh, seem to have a, a tremendous amount of self awareness. And I got to say, you're a fucking warrior. I mean, the 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 childhood that that you walk through and the abandonment uh, that's fucking profound. And um, it's it's so good that you're able to talk about your emotions and your sadness, and to not feel like that makes you week um I, I get emails from people that are afraid to cry that mm -hmm. are afraid to break down that are afraid to admit that they want to collapse mm -hmm. that they want to die that mm -hmm. they dread the sun coming up every day and i say that you know that, that's okay it's yeah. okay to to feel that um there are things that, that we can do that um might make it better yeah we're totally out here in this world there's a lot of us <laughs> there's, there's a, a lot of us a lot of us sliding around in our own snot on yes. the living room floor we're making it work yeah <laughs> snot and all and <laughs> it's better to slide on your own snot in the living room floor than to um you know bottle it up and be a robot and then yeah. sna snap right one, one day because it will find its way out, whether it through a crack in a toenail or something. If enough is bottled up for long enough, it will find its way out. And that is, the, in my experience, the greater danger. Way, way greater. Yeah. Well, Pia Glenn, thank you uh, so much. What uh, people can find your uh, YouTube channel? It's called uh, Black Weekend Update. The channel is PCG Broadcast. Oh, okay. PCG is my initials. But the show um, is uh, what I've been doing lately is Black Weekend Update. But there's all oh, kinds so of videos. Oh, so there's more than just yeah, that. yeah. There's oh, more than just th that. Those are the only ones that came up when That's I clicked on the That's what I've been doing lately. Okay, but there's more than just that. Yeah, and um, and they can read your articles at Xo Jane. Xo Jane. Uh, we'll put links uh, up to all this stuff sure. on the on the website, yeah, but. Uh, Tweet me. I love my Twitter. It's at Pia Glenn with two N's. And, and Twitter has been a great way for me to connect with people who are, because I'm not afraid to say like, hey, feeling poopy today. <laughs> and, yeah. and people say, you know, social media is very, can can be very fake, can be very, you know, look at my, I'm on a boat or whatever yeah. it is. But we're all people. We're all out there, ups and downs and doing our thing. So tweet me and say hi. Thanks, Pia. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Pia. Um, steamrolled her a little bit in the the interview, but I get wound up sometimes when I feel like I'm connecting to a guest and I don't feel so fucked up and and alone. Um, sent her an email. She's uh, she's doing okay, struggling a little bit with her depression, but um, go check out her YouTube channel and um, support her. And speaking of uh, support, a uh, friend of the show, Megan Parkansky, um, she was a guest twice, and uh, she's a documentary filmmaker, and she is trying to fund a documentary that she wants to do about mental illness, and it's being funded on Indiegogo. I will put a link up on our website uh, under the show notes, 
and uh, click click on that and uh, support her if you would. One of the things that she's auctioning off are Skype sessions with me. Um, and so if that interests you and you got a thousand dollars to uh, to uh, part with, um, which I would never charge in in real life. Um, so if you want to do a Skype session, it could be um, you asking me questions, me interviewing you, asking you questions, or just a conversation, um, whatever whatever you'd like. But it would go towards all of it would go towards um, uh, funding this this documentary. And what else did I want to share? I have to share this with you guys. My right shoulder has been like clicking when I move it lately, and I was trying to think back to when it started doing it and I realized like the last time I really watched a lot of porn um, was about three months ago and I remembered one morning I woke up after having looked at a lot of porn and I wasn't even like jerking off when I was looking at the porn I was just like trying to escape just visually going from site to site to site to site but I sat there pretty much frozen for like five hours one night just on my laptop and it's the the arm that I use for my mouse and I'm like I fucked my shoulder up from browsing porn how, how pathetic is that hey, Paul what's the matter with your shoulder oh it's it's an old objectifying injury picked up in my late late 40s early 50s pathetic pathetic um what else did I want to mention I think that was it um the other thing I thought when I was editing the episode together with Pia was, did it, when I was expressing disbelief that she didn't get out, asked out more, I was like, was I doing that backhanded thing like that person was that, that pissed her off, that person that was uh, saying, why aren't you more famous? Uh, I, I hope that, I hope it didn't c- come across that way. Um, let's get to the surveys, enough. I, I'm not even going to say what the other, about supporting the show and the website and all Blow it out your ass. I'm telling that to the the marketing obsessed half of my brain. It was like, come on, we got to expand the show. We got to get more listeners. We need more monthly donors. Come on, you think the show's going to support itself? Go fuck yourself. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself hoping for freedom. And I just want to read her darkest thought. And she writes, just the garden variety homicidal stuff, drowning myself in a bathtub, letting the water cover my face and nose and just stop trying to breathe, Uh, driving into something to get uh, one car or maybe to get uh, driving into something to get a NE car or maybe a disability claim, I I think there's a typo there, Uh, or death benefits for my son as if I actually planned ahead for him. Uh, walking up to my brother and punching him full in the balls. I like that it's not quarter in the balls, not half in the balls, full in the balls. So you know, you know that punch is going to start from her toes, going to torque her hips, put the full fury of sibling rivalry right into his nutsack. Um... She writes, repeat this on every man I ever thought loved me and in the end left. 
hoping they are miserably pining over me and my mailbox will be stuffed with please forgive me mail, which says, I've never stopped thinking about how horrible I was to you. I'm truly so very sorry I ever hurt you. I've changed and you were the best thing I ever had. I'm sorry I was so fucked up. I couldn't see it and understand what was going on with myself enough to open up to you and deeply care for you. Please marry me because you are too amazing to be left alone for the rest of your life. I want to spend the rest of my life finding out how much a loving partner can improve my quality of life and I want your love to shine brightly in my open heart. It's so fantastic. God damn it, do I love you listeners. God damn it. And I don't need mean to take the Lord's name in vain to express that, but there is no other way than to sadden God. That's the only way I know how to express how grateful I am for you, you guys and your beautiful articulation of your your souls. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Hiking Alone. She is straight in her 50s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse. One she reported, one she never reported. Um, I'm not going to read them. I, I don't think they really... Um, um, I just feel like I'm, I'm... Sometimes I feel like I'm reading too much of that. Uh, of that stuff so um, uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused uh, after all the crap in my childhood and having a mom with apparently borderline personality disorder I chose abusive men I was in a physically and emotionally abusive marriage for 20 years I was in a conservative church and the pastors kept telling me uh, my husband would get better if I just prayed for him more once I actually fasted for three weeks to give God the power to change my husband. It did not work. I'm so glad to be out of that relationship now and out of that church, which I also consider to have been abusive. Thank you for saying that because I think there is so much intentional and unintentional abusing via religion in, in the world and... It's so obvious to those of us that don't fall prey to it, but to those that do fall prey to it, it it's just, uh, it's hard It's hard to witness. Um, anyway, any positive experiences with your abusers? When my mom was dying in comatose, I stood in her nursing home room and rubbed her back. It was the first time I felt completely safe in her presence. Does that count? Actually, there were good times. She always took us for picnics at cemeteries so we wouldn't be terrified by them like she was. I tried pretty hard in my 20s and 30s to make a good relationship happen with her. Well, you sound like a really, really sweet soul who has tried very hard. Um, darkest thoughts? I think the darkest thing is my sexual fantasies. I often think about an older, gen older grandfather type playing with my pussy. And then she writes in parentheses, I just spent several minutes trying to decide what word to use. I considered lovely genitalia or naughty bits, some others, but it's my pussy. Um, I would say let Gramps go at it. That's how I would, I would phrase it. Um, let Gramps drive the motorboat. I don't even know what that means. Uh, 
Darkest secrets, uh, all the sexual abuse. Uh, I used to keep I used to keep each incident in a separate spot in my head. I never thought about more than two of them at the same time. When a therapist had me write all them down, I was surprised to see how many there were. And what a testament to the ability of the human brain to bury stuff that's painful. Uh, anything you'd like to tell to someone you haven't been able to, I'd like to tell my last boyfriend he's an idiot. I can't tell him because I can't cope with seeing him. Plus, what good would it do? Um, Have you shared these things with others? Yeah, I see a really good therapist. It made a difference to go to a psychologist with a doctorate degree instead of a counselor. I got it down to every three months for a couple of years. Then I had to break up with a man I loved because he wasn't meeting my minimum relationship needs. Now I'm seeing the therapist every two weeks again. Sigh. I've done so much therapy and the first couple decades was not helpful because I was seeing Christian counselors and they were idiots. I'd like to tell them that. I'd like to make them take a course on abuse. I'd like to put them into an abusive situation for 20 years and see how they manage it. I guess I actually want them to suffer. Nice. That's her saying nice. Um, sending you a hug. Sending you a hug, man. That is some... There, I, there are so many surveys that I've read, too, where um, just really fucked up abuse has happened under the guise of... the. Listen to the Julie J episode. That is a really good one. That one kind of encapsulates it. Um, this is from the Body Shame survey and there's two of these back to back that I want to read because when I read the body shame survey responses 90% of them are people mostly women talking about how they hate their bodies because they feel fat and they wish they were thinner and taller or had bigger boobs or whatever and that's why I want to read these two this one was filled out by a woman who calls herself Emily and um she is uh, either 18 or 19. And uh, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I am tall and thin and flat-chested with the type of body that models have, with bones you can see through my skin. I eat a lot of crappy food, but I stay thin because of genetics. I have a fast metabolism and a condition that keeps me all skin and bones. I dislike that I like my body because it feels like the body I'm supposed to like, the body that everyone glorifies when they put girls like me in magazines, but it's also the body that people call inhuman, the body that becomes, quote, unnatural when women trying to redefine beauty say that real women have curves. I don't resent those women, and I know they have certainly endured much worse than I have, but I think body image pretty much sucks for all women. Even when you have the model body that guys are supposed to want, your flat chested and inhuman and not real and you're scared of the way your breath shakes your ribs and the way you can see your heart beating out of your chest. I dislike that I like my body because I worry in liking it that I'm betraying all the women who have loved their bodies despite what men and society tell them. I dislike that I like my body because I dislike loving what men and society have taught me. That's very profound. Thank you for uh, sharing that. Um, and then this one just really struck me too. This was filled out by um, a woman named Lanta, and she is in her 40s. And 
She writes, I despise my breasts. They're comically, cartoonishly big. From the time I was 12, my mother was constantly scolding me about, quote, giving people the wrong idea if I wore anything at all form-fitting or cut lower than a crew neck. I was severely burned around that time and was supposed to wear a tight-fitting compression vest to flatten the scar. And since I was developing at the time, I kept needing to be refitted and my mother would glare at me, enraged while I was being measured. Men have been hitting, I like, as if it were your fault that you were burned or that you were growing. Uh, men have been hitting on me since then as well. When I was 13, a grown man tried to pick me up in the youth, uh, young adult section of the library. And when I was 15, an elderly man started making really graphic comments to me at a bus stop. By the way, that's the best place to make gross comments. Um... Uh, made gross comments to me at a bus stop when I was wearing a heavy winter coat zipped up to the neck. I deleted my okay Cupid profile because I was sick of getting nice tits as an opening line. I wish I could just get a mastectomy. And I guess I wanted to read those two because we always think if somebody has something that we want, we always think they got it made. And I think that's why I wanted to read that. Um... This is an awfulsome moment filled out by oh, our friend uh, Girlface. She writes, During my last hospitalization, a, gr a group of patients and I are sitting around a puzzle that will inevitably be missing pieces. We are talking about, quote, life on the outs uh, with a mix of frustration, trepidation, and pain. The conversation eventually moves to what we will do first on their first day out. Most of the people in the group referenced sex or shaving. I said, lace and tie my shoes then write with a pen like a grown-up. After that, the conversation devolved into laughter and jokes about what it would be to be a grown-up, what it is to be grown-up and adult activities. There I was in severe emotional pain and I was laughing the hardest I had in weeks. That's awesome. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Kiki. She is... Straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, and um, about her emotional abuse. I don't know if this counts, but my first, quote, boyfriend really knew how to fuck me up just right. This was when I was 12 and he was 16. He said all the right things and acted the right way and finally told me he loved me, and that was it. I lost my virginity to him. It's embarrassing because my mom used to always tell me not to sleep with the first person that says I love you because they're usually just trying to get in your pants and it, it's exactly what I did. He broke up with me a couple of weeks later. It was terrible and it's something that still messes with me now. For a long time I felt dumb and naive and just plain stupid for doing what I did. But after a while I decided that I was a victim because even though I didn't say no, I was too young to be making decisions like that. Now I don't know what to think. The thing I do know is... Uh, is that this is where my depression started and pretty much the reasoning behind all the fucked up shit in my head. You know, the first thing I thought when I read this was, you know, if if you were about to, thir to turn 13 and he had just turned 16, that might not seem like that big of an age gap. But if you were in the middle of being 12 and he was in the middle of being 16, I don't know, man, That that seems, that just seems... That just doesn't seem like a, a healthy age gap to me. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I grew up with my abuser, and he was a big part of my preteen years. You might even call him family. 
A lot of my earlier memories involve him and his siblings. There are a lot of pictures of us around. My mom asks me why I don't speak with him anymore, even though we were, quote, so close when we were younger. If only she knew. Well, I wonder what would happen if you told her. Um, But I don't know. If your mom doesn't sound like an open-hearted person, that might just exacerbate it. Darkest thoughts. Not that I I would ever do this, but I constantly think about getting the chance to seduce my abuser, the guy that stole my virginity, sleep with him, and then tell his wife and family and destroy his life like he destroyed mine. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Anything that involves an authoritative male figure taking control of me, preferably a man in his late 30s, balding and with a slight beer belly. Right now, eight guys just drop their barbecue tongs. <laughs> Honey, are you okay over there? Oh, yeah. Just, just cooking the breast. I mean, the chicken. Uh, she writes, I am not ashamed of my sexual fantasies as I am pretty open about my unique preferences, so I feel fine. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to. I've always wanted to confront the guy I lost my virginity to. I've always wanted to ask him why me and if he feels any remorse at all and if he ever thinks about me. I also want to know why he acts like nothing ever happened between us because honestly it makes me feel a little crazy like I made up the whole thing. I haven't been able to do that because I feel like it would just open a can of worms. It would just open up a shithole that I don't want open. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? I wish I were normal. I just feel so fucking broken all the time. Like something inside isn't right. I'm constantly seeking things to make me feel better. Things to focus on to take my mind off of all my issues and shit. Whether it's a boy, my job, a book, a TV show, etc. I wish I could just feel like a normal person. I wish that in the future when someone says it's quote bad timing for our burgeoning relationship... I don't feel like shit, and I can just accept it and move on. Thank you for sharing that, Kiki. This is uh, Shame and Secrets filled out by a guy who calls himself Mark, and he is bisexual in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, not uh, sure if he's ever been physically or emotionally. Darkest thoughts, I'm always thinking of the hate I feel for myself for being so lazy, but I know I'm not actually lazy, just afraid to try and reach my potential because I'm so scared of failure. Darkest secrets. Everyone in my life thinks I've been spending the past five years going to school, but I really haven't. The lie has become so big, I've even made fake documents in Photoshop, quote, proving I've been going to school and claiming the benefits that come with it. Parents, health coverage, tax exemptions, etc., Uh, On days when I'm supposed to be in classes, I would walk to a nearby park, sit and wait and do nothing until the time I was expected to come home. On other days, I would just sleep the day away, not wanting to get up and face reality. The real kicker? I'm supposed to, quote, graduate in less than a week, and I'm so paralyzed by anxiety that I can't just own up to my terrible, terrible mistake. Fuck me. This is the first time I've told anyone about this. So, to sum it up, I'm depressed, scared, lonely and committing a shitload of fraud and nobody knows it but me good times oh buddy i think we all just want to give you a hug man that's a lot that's a lot on your plate but i think anybody listening to this has been if not that specific thing 
has experienced something like that and you will get through this. This is not the end of your life. This is just a small chapter in your life and if you keep moving forward and heading in the right direction, you're going to learn stuff from this and someday you'll be able to look back on this and and laugh and just trust me. Just trust me on that. All of a sudden a shot rings out in the far distance. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Anything involving unnaturally, ridiculously large cocks. I enjoy a cock that is ridiculously large, where when, when somebody pulls it out, the other person says, come on, seriously. Uh, I honestly don't mind sharing, uh, sharing this. I've met people who have the same fetish. In my case, I think it probably stems from my lack of self-esteem and poor body image. Um, have you shared these things with others? I haven't shared most of these things with anyone. Sometimes it feels as though the lie has become too big to fail, and sometimes I'll start to believe them myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good, like I'm taking the first step towards being able to unfuck my life, um, admit to all of my lies, and work towards making amends for something no one else knows I've done. Yeah, I think the, the, the important thing here is not the school stuff. The school shit is not important you know you're what is important is why you can't be honest with the the people around you what is blocking that and i think once you begin to tackle that all this other shit is going to fall into place and you'll get a renewed vigor for life that will help unblock a lot of these things that feel like they're blocking you that's just my my hunch this is an awful moment filled out by goshi he is uh in his 40s He writes, sitting in a restaurant across the street from an FBI field office with a loaded pistol in my jacket pocket, thinking of how I could use this situation as a method of suicide. Felt so alive with the detailed planning that I felt better and forgot all about carrying it out. Suicidal ideation can be a good way to get out of your head. Thank you for that, Goshi. Um, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Scratch. He is... Straight, in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, he's been emotionally abused. My dad married a very cold and dark woman. She was a hypnotist and a psychotherapist, emphasis on psycho, and used to mess with our heads to get back at my mom. She twisted my brain stems, made me hate myself. I don't remember a lot of it, but I know she did damage, and I am certain some of it is deliberate. Uh, Any positive experiences with her? Nope, every so often she gave me a chocolate or something, but I didn't give a fuck. I still hated her. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about torturing or hurting people who are rude to me. I can remember fantasizing about raping and choking my stepmother when I was a bit younger. I also have sexually degrading thoughts about attractive women pop into my head constantly, and it bums me out. It's like what Jesus said about when you look at a hot woman, you have committed adultery in your heart or whatever. I glance up at a reasonably attractive person. In my head, I'm bending her over, fucking her in every hole, whatever, and it just makes me feel so low, like a creep, a pervert, a misogynist. I want to be a feminist. Dude, my thought is, A, most people have graphic sexual thoughts all day long about other people. And if you're afraid that you're a misogynist, you're probably not a misogynist. Just like the the parent that frets that they might not be a good parent, those are usually the people that are probably going to be good parents. You know, the bad misogynists are the ones that don't think there's anything wrong with them. Um 
Darkest secrets? He writes probably the above nasty thoughts. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Probably nasty, aggressive sex with someone who hates me and down talks me or vice versa. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I don't know. I have some abusive exes that I'd like to ask why they treated me the way they did, but I already know the answer. It's because they would have had their own issues they hadn't worked out at the time. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? Just not to hate myself. Have you shared these things with others? I've tried to. The sex thing is hard to explain. I can't really pinpoint it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a stupid dick. Um, kind of wish you were a stupid, ridiculously large dick, though. Because then people could pull you out at a party and go, look at how ridiculously large of a stupid dick this guy is. And then one person would be getting turned on. I kind of want to go back and erase that, but also kind of want to leave it in. So I'm leaving it in. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yeah, they're just thoughts. Don't worry about it. I know, pot, kettle black, but it's easier to put someone else's shit in perspective than your own. I agree heartily with that. And then uh, this is an email, an awful moment that actually was emailed to me uh, by Sarah. And she writes, my first year in college, things went smoothly for several months. I was making good grades, had a few friends, and was settling into my new life. But then things started changing. First, I couldn't find the motivation to go to classes, then to hang out with friends. Before long, I had stopped showering. It was too exhausting. I was sleeping all the time and only occasionally fed myself by eating cold soup straight out of the can. I had no idea what was wrong. Back in 1997, depression wasn't discussed. I had a thyroid problem, so I thought maybe that's what was wrong, but I just couldn't get myself to the campus clinic. After several weeks of sleeping through my parents' phone calls, I never even heard the phone ring, my folks showed up on campus and dragged me to the campus clinic. I ended up in front of a psychiatrist who very carefully explained to my parents that I was going through a massive clinical depression, one of the worst she'd seen, and I'd need medication and therapy to work my way out of it. Even though she said that there was a high chance that I would continue to go through these at major points in my life, I was so relieved to know I wasn't going crazy. My mom was also also relieved. We had a plan of action and concrete things we could do that would help me get better. My dad looked doubtfully at the psychiatrist and asked, Isn't it possible she's just lazy? God damn it. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and then she adds, what's especially crazy is that after the doctor assured him that that was not the case, he still asked another therapist the same thing a month or two later. Thanks, Dad. Oh, God. That is just... Why, why does that make me so happy? I think because she knows... That her dad is a douche. That is just... It's like when the douche light bulb goes off in people's heads. That is just... I guess because it's an epiphany. You know, that was an epiphany for her. That, oh my God. This guy... Is emotionally... An idiot... 
And the weird thing is, is good people can be emotional idiots. That's the thing that's so hard to wrap our heads around sometimes. All right. We're going to end it with this uh, awfulsome moment. Um, and I got to say, I think this is more of a happy moment than an awfulsome moment. But, but I understand why she she filled it out in that category. Uh, it's filled out by a woman who calls herself I'm Sorry. She's in her 20s. And she writes, at a retreat for a college group I'm a part of, we did all sorts of get-to-know-you games, which really are the worst. At the end of the day, we had to play If You Really Knew Me, uh, where we would go around the circle and say, if you really knew me, you'd know that blank, blank, blank. And each person would fill in the blank. It slowly took off and started to get deeper and more personal as we went around the circle more times. As it came to me, I broke down in sobs, saying, if you really knew me, I am wholeheartedly afraid that everyone I love will leave me because my parents gave my brother and I up for adoption when we were four and five. I proceeded to talk about how they had four years to get to know me and they still decided that I wasn't worth loving. And I fear that everyone will do that because it seems that so many people have left my life. After the game was done, our leader asked us to again go around the circle and one by one uh, take turns and tell the person sitting next to us something from the heart. I was sitting next to my very best friend who never cries and really just isn't an emotional person. Um, isn't an emotional person, very unlike me. And she starts bawling and says, I need you to know that I will never, ever leave you. And I'm in your life for good, whether you like it or not. I still look back on that as the kindest thing anyone has ever said to me. And I believe her. Well, how do you end on a moment any fucking sweeter? Any sweeter than that? I suppose I could whip out a ridiculously large cock. That would be pretty sweet. Um, well, what else can I tell you? Thank you for uh, supporting the show. <laughs> I can't. I literally can't find the words to 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 wrap this thing up. I my mind just as my dad used to say my. My brain just went to screensaver. Uh, I hope if you're out there and you're struggling, I hope you know that that uh, there's help if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for it. And uh, I encourage you to. I encourage you to. And um, just know that you're not alone. And thank you so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.